When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Secretary of War respectfully submits to the President of the United States the following ideas relative to the frigates authorized by the law for providing a naval armament. That the said frigates be constructed upon the principles which shall, after the most mature information and consideration, appear to combine the greatest possible force, with adequate strength, with swiftness of sailing, so as to render them equal or superior to any ships of their description belonging to the powers of Europe. If the principles of economy alone were to predominate in determining the places where said vessels were to be built and equipped, it is not improbable that the arrangement might be different from the one hereinafter submitted. But, as the government is the government of the whole people, and not of a part only, it is just and wise to proportion its benefits as nearly as may be to those places or states which pay the greatest amount to its support. It is conceived the saving of a few thousand dollars in the expenses will be no object compared with the satisfaction a just distribution would afford. Under these impressions, the following are submitted as places at which it might be proper to build the said frigates. To wit, Charleston, South Carolina, Norfolk or Portsmouth, Virginia, Baltimore, Maryland, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, New York, New York, Boston, Massachusetts. This inventory may seem a strange place to start this episode, but it gets to the heart of the greatest struggle of the Washington administration, namely how to pull the various sections of the country together into one unified whole. This letter of April 15, 1794, was written by Secretary of War Henry Knox to Washington, outlining plans for the construction of the first six frigates of the U.S. Navy, as authorized by Congress in March. Knox, in his plan, saw a means of using the construction of the Navy to bring the nation together by providing for one ship to be constructed at various seaports along the eastern seaboard, both northern and southern. Not only would this spread out the economic benefit of the construction project, but symbolically, these ships would be the products of various parts of the Union and thus, collectively, be truly a national military force. We will be talking much more about the Navy in future episodes and series, but for now, know that the foundations of the Navy were being laid in 1794. Welcome, dear listener, to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Before we get into this episode, I'd like to thank Ben Jacobs of the Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast for giving voice to Secretary of War Knox to begin this episode. Though the time period that Ben covers, the early modern period of European history, is over a century back from the time we're discussing, the social, economic, religious, and intellectual movements of the time leading up to the Peace of Westphalia in 1648 were still having an impact on Washington and his contemporaries. I've been learning a great deal myself about the early modern period in Europe by listening to Ben's podcast, so I highly encourage you to check it out as well. I'll share information on the show notes page for this episode, as well as on the podcast social media, or you can do a search online for Wittenberg to Westphalia, that's Wittenberg, B-E-R-G at the end, to West P-H-A-L-I-A. Going into the second year of his second term, Washington was seeing the problems facing him compound tensions were continuing to mount in western Pennsylvania. The reign of terror in France continued to ratchet up. 
General Anthony Wayne was preparing to lead his thus far unproven troops into combat against Native American forces in the Northwest Territory. Worst of all, despite the best efforts of Washington and his administration, it seemed that the nation's people continued to be intent on dividing themselves along factional lines of various degrees, rather than becoming the unified nation that Washington envisioned and that he felt should be the dream of all others. How much longer must he labor for the greater good? Washington was growing weary and yearning ever more to return to his home on the banks of the Potomac. He was able to squeeze in time for a brief return to Mount Vernon in June. Indeed, the trip was intended to be so brief that Martha did not accompany him. During his stay, he decided to go off on an inspection tour of the canal and locks being constructed at the Little Falls of the Potomac. As we've stated in previous episodes, this canal project would link the Potomac River with the western lands beyond the Appalachians and was a pet project of Washington's. However, this inspection trip would prove to be quite perilous for the president, as his horse at one point lost its footing. A less skilled horseman would have had his head dashed against the rocks of the river. But as it was, with, quote, violent exertions, Washington was able to steady his horse and steer them both out of harm's way. This quick action would not be without consequences, though. The exertion strained Washington's back to the point that he could not mount a horse in the days afterwards. He ended up having to delay his return to Philadelphia until July 3rd, and even then, he was not able to travel as quickly as he once had. He had to make the journey in smaller stages, but persisted until he arrived back in the capital. Once there, he was not able to rest, as the duties of the office he held intruded. A delegation from the Chickasaw Nation had arrived and wanted to meet with the president. Despite his physical ailment, Washington presented himself and operated under established protocol. The nation's president was, as ever, on duty. As the summer heat bore on, though, George and Martha decided to escape from the president's house and instead took up lodgings at a house in Germantown to the north. Their escape from the city would not, however, allow Washington to escape from what felt like an increasing weight on his shoulders, a weight that he was growing ever more ready to throw off. The burden, however, was not just Washington's. We need to back up a little bit here, as we increasingly see other players, some of whom have been operating for a bit and others new to the board, exerting a greater influence over administration affairs in the second term than we did in the first. To get a better sense of where we're at, let's start out west. As we discussed last episode, though he wasn't able to carry out military operations before 1793 drew to a close, General Anthony Wayne had been able to establish a series of advanced posts deeper into the territory of the Native American nations in what is now Ohio, culminating in Fort Recovery, which was established on the site of St. Clair's defeat, which we discussed way back in episode 1.7. Not only was the reclamation of that site a psychological point of pride, as noted by Alan Gaff in his study of Wayne and the Legion of the United States, quote, by building a fort on that site, he, Wayne, could threaten the Indians by bringing elements of the Legion ominously closer to their centers of population. Just as importantly, the advance to fort recovery would allow his men to recover the artillery that St. Clair had lost and the Indians had been unable to remove. His plans would be delayed a bit, as the new year brought a delegation from the Native Confederacy seeking negotiations for peace. Though discussions began in January, they would be disrupted by the unexpected suicide of Seneca Chief Captain Bigtree, one of the delegation members, on January 23rd. 
Most of the officials of Wayne's Legion attended the funeral, and Wayne, quote, as a sign of affection for Big Tree and the Seneca Nation, sent clothing to the chief's wife and daughter, morning clothes and rifles to his brothers, ordered the commander at Fort Franklin to build a house for the family, and instructed that officer to give them plenty of provisions and everything they may want and to provide and take care of them. Between the death of Big Tree and persuasion by the British, the native negotiators would ultimately reject Wayne's terms. Wayne would learn of the British role in discouraging a peace settlement by intelligence gathered from a new spying operation that he had put into place on the first of the year. In taking this step of establishing a means of gathering information covertly, Wayne was drawing on a military strategy that had served Washington quite well in the Revolutionary War and, conversely, was seen as being one of the many weaknesses of the Harmer and St. Clair campaigns. Wayne would need all the intel he could get his hands on. For as winter gave way to spring, native forces would begin to step up attacks on convoys on the military road between Fort Washington and Fort Greenville, as well as striking at white settlements north of the Ohio River. The time was soon coming when Wayne would have to take his forces into the field to counter the native Confederacy. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. The British intrigues with native tribes in the West were tied in with larger international issues that were also the cause for Congress agreeing to the construction of the first naval frigates in April. Going back a little bit to 1793, I mentioned in episode 1.17 the British orders in council for that nation's naval commanders to seize neutral seagoing vessels bound for France with supplies. Those orders, issued on June 8th, exempted American vessels from seizure. However, they were soon supplanted by secret orders in council passed by the British government on November 6th, ordering British naval vessels to seize all neutral vessels bound for France, including American ships. The British Navy did not strike until late December, where, in a coordinated effort in the Caribbean, which was the location, as noted by historian Forrest MacDonald, of, quote, virtually the whole American merchant fleet devoted to the trade. British vessels seized around 250 U.S. merchant ships and took them into British ports to be condemned and sold. This was a huge blow for American shipping, which was also facing increased attacks by pirates from the Barbary states, an essentially autonomous series of states along the coast of North Africa. Furthermore, it put the American seamen who had worked on the vessels, the ones who weren't impressed in serving in the British Navy, that is, in the position of being stranded in the Caribbean without access to a means to get home or to get funds to return to the U.S. Clearly, some kind of action had to be taken, and both the executive and legislative branches in Philadelphia were feeling pressure from merchants to take action. Representative James Madison picked up the baton from Jefferson and, on January 3rd, put forward, quote, a series of commercial propositions aimed at enacting Jefferson's strategy from his report on commerce into law, which would have created an American mercantilist system opposed to Britain and favorable to France. 
Secretary of the Treasury Hamilton worked with his friend, Representative William Lawden Smith of South Carolina, to develop arguments against Madison's proposal, while Hamilton himself took to print under the pseudonym Americanus to assert that the real danger lay on the other side of the English Channel with the reign of terror in France. The news of the action against the U.S. merchant ships in the West Indies arrived in Philadelphia, bringing the point home that, without a navy to protect U.S. shipping interests, Madison's proposal or any type of economic retaliation was without teeth and worthless. The Federalists in Congress proposed and were able to pass an embargo against the British, along with the bill authorizing the construction of the six frigates. Other Federalist proposals for an expansion of the Army and the enactment of provisional war taxes were voted down by the Democratic-Republican majority, but the Federalists at least had control of the initiative. Increasingly, the talk in Federalist circles was of sending a special envoy to London in order to seek a peaceful resolution to the issues between the two nations before an incident happened to spark a war. There were, indeed, many issues to discuss. Not only the problems on the high seas, but also the fact that Britain was not abiding by the terms of the Treaty of Paris, which had ended the Revolutionary War. One of the treaty stipulations was that the British would evacuate its forts in what was at this point the Northwest Territory. But as of 1794, over 10 years on, they were still in possession of a number of them. Thus, on March 10th, Federalist Senators George Cabot, Oliver Ellsworth, Rufus King, and Caleb Strong gathered at King's lodgings in Philadelphia to discuss the situation, with Ellsworth being appointed to speak to Washington about, quote, the need to calm the public, while at the same time proposing vigorous defense measures and the appointment of an agent to the West Indies to assess American shipping losses and assist aggrieved merchants and seamen as well as to send a special envoy to England to adjust the difference between the two countries. Who did the senators have in mind as an envoy? Why, the Secretary of the Treasury himself. As noted by Representative Fisher Ames in a letter shortly afterwards, quote, Should a special minister be sent from this country to demand reparations from Great Britain, much will depend on his character and address. Who but Hamilton would perfectly satisfy all our wishes? While Hamilton may satisfy Federalist wishes, he embodied Democratic-Republican fears. As his name was floated about, Democratic-Republicans spoke with Washington and conveyed their arguments that Hamilton, due to his much-publicized pro-British leanings, quote, would lack all credibility at home in selling any agreement that he could negotiate. Knowing the strength of those arguments on Washington, Hamilton on April 14th wrote to the president removing his name from consideration and instead recommended the alternate candidate that Ellsworth had proposed during their meeting on the matter. Quote, Mr. J is the only man in whose qualifications for success there would be thorough confidence, and him whom alone it would be advisable to send. I think the business would have the best chance possible in his hands, and I flatter myself that his mission would issue in a manner that would produce the most important good to the nation. The president would ultimately take the advice of the Federalists and nominate Chief Justice John Jay as the special envoy to Britain. But his mission to London will be the subject of another episode in order for us to turn our attention back to the West while the Chief Justice prepares to journey East. Along with all the other issues being faced by the federal government in the western lands of the United States, the Washington administration had to address a scheme concocted by an acclaimed Revolutionary War leader, 
General George Rogers Clark. A Virginian by birth, Clark had early on migrated out to what would become Kentucky and would make a name for himself during the Revolution by successfully leading a force against British outposts at Vincennes in modern-day Indiana and Kaskaskia in modern-day Illinois. Though hailed as a hero during the Revolution, after the war, Clark found both himself and the West relegated to a position of lesser importance in the larger scheme of the nation. By Christmas of 1792, he had had enough. Together with his brother-in-law, Dr. James O'Fallon, Clark developed a scheme by which he would raise an army in Kentucky that he would lead down the Ohio and Mississippi rivers all the way down to New Orleans, thus liberating the river for the use of Americans in the West. If this sounds familiar, we discussed it back in episode 1.16, as this was one of the schemes that our old friend Edmund Charles Genet had directly encouraged, with Genet and Clark carrying on a correspondence throughout 1793, with Genet even offering to give Clark legitimate backing by the French government. On January 25th, 1794, Clark went public with the scheme, posting a newspaper announcement in the Sentinel of the Northwestern Territory, calling for volunteers. This was much too much for the administration, and Governor of the Northwest Territory, our other old friend Arthur St. Clair, was instructed to issue a proclamation asking citizens of that territory to not sign up with Clark. On March 24th, Washington himself issued a proclamation asserting that, quote, such unwarrantable measures, being contrary to the laws of nations and to the duties incumbent on every citizen of the United States, tend to disturb the tranquility of the same and to involve them in the calamities of war, and, quote, solemnly warning every person not authorized by the laws, against enlisting any citizen or citizens of the United States, or levying troops, or assembling any persons within the United States for the purposes aforesaid, or proceeding in any manner to the execution thereof, as they will answer for the same at their peril. Clark, as had so many others, would see his ambitions peter out when they ran contrary to the will of George Washington and the president would see nothing interfere with his administration's plans for the West. Despite all of General Wayne's careful, diligent efforts to train his force, the Legion of the United States was still under strain. Thus, the Washington cabinet approved orders in May for Wayne to use 2,000 frontier volunteers as auxiliaries in order to augment the force to actually prosecute action that year. The administration needed a win in the West. Luckily, Wayne had been training his forces on key operational improvements for being on the move that had been weak points in Harmer and St. Clair's campaigns. First, quote, Wayne devised a plan to minimize his army's exposure to surprise. Wayne made it standard practice that his troops would bivouac early and fortify their position every night. Though they would only move approximately 12 miles a day, this would allow for ample time to fortify their position and guard against sneak attacks that were the modus operandi of native forces in the area. Even with the troop shortages, Wayne still had more troops at his disposal than Harmer or St. Clair had during their failed campaigns. Wayne's forces numbered around 3,500 men, with just over 2,000 regular forces and 1,500 mounted volunteers. In comparison, Harmer had at his disposal a mostly militia force of approximately 1,450, while St. Clair had a mixed regular and militia force of around 2,300. Also to his advantage, though he had no way of knowing it at the time, 
was the fact that the native forces struck first. In June, the garrison at Fort Recovery faced two days of assaults from a force of several hundred Native Americans and were able to withstand the assault. Historian Richard Cohn attributes the failure of this assault for, quote, breaking the back of Indian military power. Thus, when Wayne and his force of 3,500 broke camp at Fort Greenville on June 28th and started marching north, they were setting off from a position of strength. It may have been long in coming, but the day was nigh for the Legion of the United States to shine. Simultaneously, the luster was fading for one member of Washington's cabinet. Henry Knox had served as Secretary of War for longer than even Washington had been president. He marked his ninth year as Secretary of War in March and was growing increasingly restless as personal issues continued to mount. Knox had started to build a home for himself in Thomaston, Maine, which was at that point not an independent state, but rather a part of Massachusetts. But with his attentions occupied with overseeing the logistics of Wayne's campaign in the West and the establishment of naval yards to facilitate the construction of the first six frigates of the U.S. Navy, Knox had been unable to provide the direction needed to construct his own house. In the spring of 1794, it was getting to the point that Knox would either have to postpone the project, which would have cost him more money, or go to the site to sort out his affairs. As someone who had served under Washington for many years, Knox initially told his estate manager, Henry Jackson, in a letter on May 10th that, quote, I cannot leave my situation in this critical state of affairs. But he ultimately asked for and was granted a six-week leave of absence to head north. Before he could set off, though, news came in from western Pennsylvania, which put the administration on high alert. The Battle of Bower Hill in mid-July had only been the beginning. Seeing the lengths that the rebel forces of the Mingo Creek Association were willing to go, moderate leaders in western Pennsylvania, including Hugh Henry Brackenridge, who had been previously working for a peaceful resolution to the conflict, began to capitulate and vocalize their support for the rebels. They may not have been ideologically aligned, but until the federal or state government asserted itself in force, the Mingo Creek group was in charge, and those opposed might quickly find themselves six feet under. The rebel forces took to seizing the U.S. mail going out of the area in order to confiscate any calls for assistance from the authorities in Philadelphia and identify potential opponents to the new order. Before long, the rebels' attention turned to the city that some were now dubbing Sodom, Pittsburgh. Though by eastern standards it was still a small town, Pittsburgh was the largest urban area for hundreds of miles. As described by historian William Hoagland, quote, there were about a thousand residents, plus a quarry, mills, a boatyard, a pottery, and other industries. Yet wildness still seemed to press against the town. Log and brick buildings lined earthen streets, often muddy, on the low point of land where the two rivers, pinching a point's tip, converged to become the Ohio and flow west. There was new business to do, and when people came to Pittsburgh to do it, they arrived on the high ridge and were presented with a bird's-eye vista. The Ohio, segmented in flashing glints by rows of hazily violet hills, curled northward before making its big southwestern turn. People rode down the steep slope to the waterfront, busy in the 1790s with flatboats and keelboats, to ford or be ferried to the little town on the point. It was a key gateway between the eastern and western lands, and thus it was seen as crucial to both the federal and rebel forces. 
Plans were put in place for a grand muster of rebel forces at Braddock's Field, that infamous location of Braddock's defeat and Washington's glory as, quote, the hero of the Monongahela, as discussed all the way back in episode 1.1. Meanwhile, quote, country people started coming into Pittsburgh to buy provisions, and they muttered about high prices, predicted the town's gouging would soon come to an end, and tried to trade produce for large stocks of flint and powder. Strangers were seen hanging around the streets. Country women said they were looking forward to living in the rich people's houses. Country men to getting new hats and clothes free of charge. Pittsburgh was now called Sodom, and it was said that this time, Sodom would be leveled by fire not from heaven, but from earth. Breckenridge and the moderates met with rebel leaders in order to save the city. Ultimately, they were given two conditions. One, they were given a list of Pittsburgh citizens known to have close ties to the federal government that would have to be banished. And two, the men of Pittsburgh would have to join the muster at Braddock's Field and, quote, march enthusiastically. Thus, on August 1st, the Pittsburgh militia joined the others at Braddock's Field for the muster. The scene was described by Hoagland as follows, quote, All around the plain, whiskey was passed as muskets and rifles fired again and again. The rebels used balls to hit marks and powder alone to shoot into the air. They were mostly dressed in buckskin hunting gear and wore handkerchiefs around their necks, the outfits they wore to battle Indians. Various parades started up. Men made harangues condemning traitors not to tar and feathers, but to the guillotine. The Pittsburghers rudely challenged again and again by men they did not know on their loyalty to the New West, loudly deprecated the citizens they banished, agreed to further banishments, cheered on the most extreme plans of violence, and wondered if they'd survive the day. The next day, as folks got roused and mustered, they also got restless, and one of the leaders suggested a march on Pittsburgh. The proposal was received enthusiastically, and the moderates from the town agreed and tried to do all they could to prevent it from becoming a chaotic scene of violence and disorder. The rebel forces marched into town where they were, quote, formally greeted by the Pittsburgh Committee of 21 and assorted townspeople. Whiskey, water, and food were served to the troops by Pittsburgh's women. The host politely offered the foot soldiers ferry rides across the river in boats. Mounted troops were shown to the best fording point. By nighttime, there were fewer than 200 rebels left in town. However, there was still one more plan to thwart a scheme to set fire to the homes and offices of numerous known federal sympathizers. The moderates worked quickly and were successful in their efforts so that, as the last of the rebel troops were being ferried across the river, Pittsburgh remained at peace. The federal government in Philadelphia, however, began to wonder whether it was at war. The news of Bower Hill was received on July 25th. Then the administration learned about the seizure of the U.S. mail, followed by plans for the demonstration at Braddock's Field. Washington called his cabinet in for a meeting to discuss the situation, with the cabinet proposing that, as Congress was not in session, the president was authorized to consult with a justice of the Supreme Court, as stipulated by the Militia Act of 1792, and should the justice agree, quote, that law enforcement had truly failed in the area, then Washington would be authorized to organize and use a federal military force to quell the uprising. Washington, or to be more accurate, Hamilton, as he was the one that had been advocating for and orchestrating the necessity of using military force, found a willing partner in Supreme Court Justice James Wilson, who, 
with no independent investigation and only having arguments put forward by Hamilton, certified the call for federal troops on August 4th. However, before Wilson could rule, Washington and his cabinet consulted with Pennsylvania Governor Thomas Mifflin about the situation and requested that Mifflin call out the state militia. Mifflin refused, asserting that it was federal law rather than state that was being violated, and thus it would be inappropriate and even illegal for him to call out the state militia when state authority was technically not being threatened. Washington turned back to his cabinet for advice, but the cabinet split. In a position outlined by Hamilton and concurred by Knox, Hamilton laid out the developments to date, and while admitting that, quote, it was desirable, especially in a Republican government, to avoid what is in such cases the ultimate resort, till all the milder means have been tried without success, made the case that all the milder means had met failure, and thus it was time to consider other options. Secretary of State Randolph, however, advocated for negotiation with the rebel forces. He did not take the military option off of the table should the need arise, but asked, quote, what would be the inconvenience of delay? The results of the mission would be known in four weeks, and the president would be master of his measures without any previous commitment. To Randolph, not only was it doing due diligence to ensure that all peaceful measures had been pursued before force was used, but he felt that, quote, the moment is big with a crisis, which would convulse the oldest government. And if it should burst on ours, its extent and dominion can be but faintly conjectured. It is a fact, well known, that the parties in the U.S. are highly inflamed against each other, and that there is but one character which keeps both in awe. As soon as the sword is drawn, nothing will be able to restrain them. This was a time for clear-headedness, not for rash action. To this line of thinking, Attorney General William Bradford, despite his role in helping to precipitate the crisis, agreed with Randolph, though he proposed, quote, negotiations as they should serve as a means of achieving political cover while readying troops for military action. This would silence critics who would claim that the administration was being too hawkish and allow the administration to say that they were doing something with productive aims while getting military troops prepared. Despite the differing intentions, Washington agreed with Randolph and Bradford's proposed commission and on August 6th appointed Bradford, Senator James Ross of Pennsylvania, a resident of the area currently in revolt, and Pennsylvania Supreme Court Justice Jasper Yates to negotiate with the rebels in western Pennsylvania. Ross was already on the scene, but Bradford and Yates departed on the 7th. On the same day, Secretary of War Knox sent orders to the governors of Maryland, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Virginia for them to call out 13,000 militiamen and hold them at the ready to march west, while Washington issued another proclamation, as required by the Militia Act, ordering the, quote, insurgents to disperse and retire peaceably to their respective abodes by September 1st. Otherwise, the chief executive would do his duty, quote, to cause the laws to be duly executed, though feeling the deepest regret for the occasion, but with all the most solemn conviction that the essential interest of the Union demand that he act. He had taken to the saddle to construct this new nation, and by damn, he would take to the saddle once more to preserve it, if need be. If the forces of nature presented by a rushing river and an unsteady horse couldn't knock him down in the summer, then neither would misguided rebels in the fall. 
As the final olive branch was extended with one hand, Washington also reached for the sword. Next time, the enemy is engaged in one part of the West, while battle is avoided elsewhere in the West. Meanwhile, two diplomatic missions, Eastward Bound, meet with varied receptions in an episode I'd like to call, My, What Big Treaties You Have. Special thanks to the podcast audio editor, Andrew Foncook. Our gallops towards the battlefield would not be nearly as resonant without his work. If you, like me, could use Andrew's assistance with your podcast or next audio project, drop him an email at andrew at foncook, that's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. Thanks again to Ben Jacobs of Wittenberg to Westphalia for doing the intro. Check his podcast out to learn more of how we got from the Middle Ages to the Washington presidency. As for me, please send any questions, comments, or Mad Anthony Wayne memes to Presidency's Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also contact me via Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies or on Twitter at presidencies89. Source information for this episode, as well as the episode guide for our entire series on George Washington, can be found at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, The podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn, as well as through other subscription options. If you like what you heard, please take a moment to give the podcast a positive review. More reviews means greater visibility on the internet and more folks to join us on this journey. As always, I cannot thank you enough for listening. It is always such a great pleasure working on the podcast and being able to share this history with you. Until next time, take care, dear friends. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.